Welcome to the Innovation and Diffusion podcast. I'm Rebecca Gosen, a research economist at the Program in Innovation and Diffusion at the London School of Economics. And I'm uh, John Van Rienen. I'm the director of Poit. And uh, we're really happy today to have Ben Jones, who is uh, our, our guest on the podcast today. Really looking forward to uh, talking to him about his, uh, his exciting research. Yes. Uh, welcome, Ben. Uh, hope you're doing well. Are you ready for the episode? <laughs> Yes, it's uh, it's great to be with you. Look forward to this conversation. So let me also introduce you um, as well. So Benjamin Jones is the Gordon and Laura Gunn Family Professor of Entrepreneurship and a Professor of, of Strategy at the Northwestern University. And he is famous with his work on the sources of economic growth in advanced economies, focusing on innovation and entrepreneurship and scientific progress. Before we go into questions on research... Um, I want to ask you about uh, your field, actually. So what motivates you uh, to work on sources of growth, i.e., you know, entrepreneurship, innovation and science? For instance, was there a research paper uh, or someone, a role model that made you follow this path? Thanks, Ravita. So I, I, uh, I think I find it intrinsically interesting. And I think the subject of economic growth and science and innovation is really about core forces that propel higher standards of living and longer and healthier lives over the long run. So I feel like it it matters. So I think these questions are important. But at a more personal level, you know, I originally studied engineering, not economics. I kind of came to economics late. In fact, I took only one economics class as an undergraduate. And uh, the reason was because I, I thought I was going to become uh, an aerospace engineer. Uh, and wow. if you, to, to get back to sort of uh, uh, mentors and, and inspiration for that, you know, I think we all sort of have local information sets that we grew up in and around and that kind of, you know, mentors and they kind of show us possible paths. And And one path that I saw that I was excited by was my was my grandfather, my mother's father. And my mother's father, whose name was Ed Wall, was a engineer. And in World War II, he joined the U.S. Army Air Corps. Uh, this is before there was an Air Force and the United States military. And his job in World War II was to reverse engineer German jet engines. And that's what he did. And uh, they did it successfully. And then after the war, he went and helped build the jet engine business at General Electric and then eventually you know, designed. So if you fly around on a General Electric jet engine, you're, you're probably still most of the time flying around on one of his jet designs or he would lead the teams that would do that and so he was very very passionate about jet engines and airplanes and so when i grew up i was constantly regaled with stories about aerospace engineering and how exciting it was and so i think for me that was a that was kind of it sounded like an exciting path and so i sort of started off down that path but then as i as i got down that path i began to study uh, alternative energy technologies like wind turbines, another kind of turbine. And as I started to study wind turbines, it became clear to me that part of the challenge for wind turbines were engineering challenges, but the other parts were more policy challenges and that we didn't necessarily price uh, electricity correctly uh, based on the source, sort of clean energy versus, say, more dirty technologies. And that sort of uh, started and sparked an interest in economics and economic policy. And somehow in following that interest originally, and I don't even really study environmental economics, particularly as an economist, I somehow got led into economics and, and discovered that, in fact, it was it was very exciting and even more exciting to me than, than aerospace engineering. And that's that's how I ended up here. 
that's, that's so fascinating, there. isn't it, Ben? I never knew. I never. I've known Ben for many years. I never knew. I never knew that uh, that that background story. And it it touches on many of the things we've been doing in some of these podcasts about the importance of like defense innovation and how often many of the major innovations like the internet, jet engines, radar, GPS come from spillovers, civilian spillovers from defense. Mm -hmm. And also how, you know, these debates over how you direct technological change and the importance of, you know, wanting more environmental innovation and green innovation, how we can shape those also comes out of that, that, that personal story is really, really interesting. I agree. I mean, it's it's fantastic. And that also made me think about, you know, the dinner capital notion. You know, if your grandfather or your father is, let's say, as you described, like engineer, for instance, you're also very much influenced by them. <laughs> you know, your example reminded me that. That's really beautiful. So let's start with the... Um, Let's go into the questions of re like on your research a bit. We can start maybe with the production of knowledge uh, by focusing on research teams and single authors, or we can even call them, I think, uh, garage inventors. Because, for instance, in the 19th century, we see that um, mostly solo authors or garage inventors uh, are prevalent, but over time, they're taken over by research teams within firms. Um, so what do you find in your research about the role of research teams in the production of knowledge? And I think... I mean, over time, it definitely gets, you know, more gender diverse or socioeconomic um, background diverse. So do you see, for instance, that more gender diverse groups are actually doing better or vice versa? So can you tell us a bit about um, research teams? Absolutely. Uh, that's a great that's a great set of questions, I think, as a sort of certain chapters uh, required to answer answer all of all of that. But just to start, so we really do see an enormous shift between uh, uh, the old way of doing science and engineering and research, which was often a more solo activity, solo inventors, solo authors. You often have this image in one's mind of sort of some genius or otherwise just sort of working alone, walking the fields, the mountains like Einstein or in the garage and coming up with these ideas. And what we really see today, and there's been a very sort of consistent, continual shift across virtually every field of research towards teamwork. So it's all team authored papers, it's co-invented patents. And one of the things that's going on there is, is we see people are you know much more specialized, much narrower in their expertise. And, and when you work in a team, you can begin to aggregate uh, different kinds of deep knowledge together and tackle sort of wider problems. It's sort of maybe a very simple, since we're gonna, I'm going to stick with an aerospace theme today, I guess, because of my opening story about my grandfather. If you think about the Wright brothers, that was sort of two early leading aeronauts of their time, and they're basically designing, manufacturing, for the most part, even flying the first uh, airframe. Uh, and, you know, today, if you wanted to do just the jet engine, say, uh, on a modern airframe, an Airbus or a Boeing, say, you know, it's about 30 different PhD different disciplines uh, just for the jet engines. You know, there's very complicated. And then as you move on to the rest of the airframe, we're talking about other other different kinds of, of knowledge and expertise. So there's an enormous amount of teamwork that goes into, into advanced uh, technologies and pushing the frontier uh, the next step further. With regard to sort of diversity in teams, you know, so, so kind of implicit in my answer, or maybe even explicit, is the idea that you want to bring together diverse sort of knowledge, expertise, you know, in the same way in a, you know, a medical, modern medical system, you're going to have very different specialties coming together to treat and to diagnose and treat a particular illness. Um, a different kind of diversity is not just the, the, the sort of formal technical scientific knowledge, but might be just kind of diversity of perspectives, right? Or diversity of life experience that might guide research in particularly different directions. 
And in a recent paper um, with colleagues uh, here, um, we studied uh, gender diversity in teams, for example, and we found kind of two kind of main findings. One is that when when a team is gender diverse, so it's not all men, nor is it all women, but there's, you know, both, uh, mm-hmm. you see that the work, you know, conditional on other observables, and this is a descriptive finding, but the, the work is higher impact. So they tend to have higher uh, citation impact, but also it looks more novel. They tend to draw together uh, uh, more novel combinations of prior knowledge. So it's kind of outperforming. And that's kind of the first finding. So there, there does seem to be at least an associational, strong and robust and kind of many field, uh, kind of seemingly quite universal association between gender diversity in a team and sort of impact and novelty. But the other thing you see is that gender diverse teams are underrepresented you know, say if you compared it to chance, if we just sort of formed teams by chance, there would be randomly assigning people into teams, you would have a lot more gender diverse teams than we actually see. So, you know, that's another uh, uh, way of saying we see uh, homophily, right, which means that people kind of sort into groups like themselves. So we see an overrepresentation of all male teams and an overrepresentation of all female teams, and, and we see less than you'd expect of gender diverse teams, even though, and this is sort of the interesting tension, it's the gender diverse teams that on average seem to uh, outperform. Maybe since we, I mean, started talking about gender a bit, I can also give an example based on gender. Um, Like for instance, I've heard cases where, you know, wife and husband, they're both economists and they publish papers, but generally people attribute the the value of the paper, let's say, uh, to the men, not to the women. So I've heard cases where female professors, they try to kind of show off a bit more and try to outperform um, their colleagues so that, I mean, it's kind of, they kind of, I, I, I heard that they, they have the need to, you know, prove themselves. So there are such kind of tricky situations um, in economics, maybe in other fields too. Um, what are the factors that you look at, for instance, you know, uh, to evaluate the performance of the individual or the candidate? Because I was thinking, for instance, if a job market paper has multiple co-authors, it may sometimes be less valued. I mean, I understand when it's the case, for instance, if you co-author, let's say you're a PhD student and you co-author with a professor, then I understand the concern. But I mean, if we think that, for instance, research teams are actually doing better, for instance, like why, or is there a bias uh, towards multi-authored papers in economics or, you know, or if, if there is, why is that the case? Right. So this, this raises a very a very important and tricky issue, which is about credit allocation in teams, right? So it's, it's you know, you might want to move towards these teams because they're, they're effectively more productive, right? That's what we're sort of saying. And you may kind of be forced to do it even to, you know, to push the frontier in biomedicine or, you know, aerospace or whatever you're going to be in these teams. And, 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 and you're going to, you know, everyone wants to write high impact papers, maybe more novel papers. And so these are all kind of good features. But when you work in a team, you know, inside the team, you know who did what. You have a pretty good sense of where the credit should go. But if you're not on the team, if you're an outside observer, you're evaluating the people on the team, say, for to hire them, uh, as you're noting on the job market, or maybe later when they're coming up for tenure in an academic context. How do you know who contributed and who was a main driver of some idea and who was just kind of riding along, maybe even free riding? That is very hard to know externally. And I think... Um, this makes it more challenging for a, a junior author, right? Because they're trying to establish their own reputation and they want jobs and they want maybe grants and resources as well. Uh, but how do you establish an independent reputation when all your work 
you know, is in teams. And if you, then you don't work in teams, it's probably not going to be as good to work. So, so it, it creates a real, I think, uh, challenge, a challenge and tension. And, and you alluded uh, related to sort of potential uh, gender bias in this. And I think, you know, Heather Sarsons, for example, and her co-authors have, have work suggesting just that, looking at the tenure decision, that, that when you come up for tenure in economics, uh, in our field, uh, men seem to get credited for co-authored work as if they'd written it themselves, and women seem to get a credit penalty for co-authored work, which is to suggest mm-hmm. that, you know, people are, you know, because the outsiders don't know, you can't perceive what happened on a team, that unfortunately creates a lot of room for bias. You say, well, I don't know, but I'm going to make some assumptions. I'm going to assume that this type of person, based on whatever characteristics I believe are, you know, sort of uh, predictive of success, should get more credit. And people might do that totally implicitly and not even be fully aware that they're doing it. Uh, but it can lead to very pernicious uh, effects. It's a matter of, of it's not fair, uh, of course, it's, but it's also potentially the extent that it's, it's chilling uh, progress uh, for certain groups in the field. It's not just that it's not fair. It might be depriving the entire research community of these diverse perspectives and, and, and talents. And so, and so I think, I think it's actually very problematic. And, you know, some, this is, of course, economics is lagging to say as a social science, like other social science, uh, social sciences, it's lagging, say the hard sciences and teamwork. So, you know, teamwork has been, our teams are bigger, you know, in, in, in lab science, for example. And, you know, they, I'm not mm-hmm. sure they've solved it perfectly. I don't think they have, but they do have a lot of norms that are different. So, for example, author order is used right, in many yeah. fields to signal credit. You know, the last, it depends on the field, but often the last author would be sort of the principal investigator who got the grant and might be helping, you know, drive the idea, but probably isn't doing a lot of the work. And then the first author would be the PhD student or postdoc who's sort of leading uh, the analysis. And, you know, and then you kind of have sequential order in between, and that's sort of a way of signaling credit. Uh, certain science journals now, including very prominent ones, um, require author contribution statements. So when you publish the paper, you have to write in prose, you know, who did what. And, you know, so there are there are means to do this economics because it tends to choose just alphabetical order or maybe random order sometimes, but doesn't doesn't use author order as a signal. There probably are some opportunities for economics to do a bit better uh, with job market papers or more generally and try to try to use some kind of objective signaling to overcome what can be otherwise be a very problematic sort of source of bias. I mean, we see that, for instance, the teams are also expanding, as you also mentioned, like there are pre-docs now, post-docs, more post-docs and more pre-docs and docs and research papers. So this is a kind of a practical question. So so if there was someone, because there, was, there are also, you know, junior faculty and they might want to hear, for instance, how they should run a team, for instance, more efficiently. So if there was someone, let's say, weekly performing or, you know, you know, low performing or free riding even or shirking, how, how do you solve that problem if that is the case? Um, and is there a strategy that you follow to make a project run more efficiently? So great question. Um, so, I mean, I guess the first thing I would say to anyone, but also junior people starting out is just run it, just work in a team, run a team, uh, build a team you know, hire research assistants, you know, think about what your comparative advantage is, allocate your time in that direction. And if it's, it, it's, it's a matter of, you know, I'm not a time series econometrician or I'm not a theorist, particularly, you know, then you collaborate with another expert. Uh, if it's a matter of, there's just a lot of work that has to be done here. I could describe it to somebody uh, and they could do a lot of it. That might be a pre-doc, but, you know, figure out what your comparative advantage is and try to allocate your time accordingly. In terms of sort of team function kind of going off the rails, as we might say, where, you know, someone is is either making mistakes or shirking, 
I, I think that that can be less of an issue than one might think because we're often in repeated interactions and, you know, you know, and if you have a bad, bad, you know, team experience, you don't repeat it, but, but, you know, most people, but more importantly, most people are aware that there might be a potential in the future to work together. And so don't want to, you know, don't want to be a bad teammate. Um, yeah. But in general, you know, you're trying to, um, you're trying to avoid weak links in a team. And, you know, one of the things that we going back to the idea of people who are specialists working together, particularly when that's going on, you know, you really are relying on each other and any one player and the team or person on the team can become a bottleneck, you know? So I've done some work trying to unpack, you know, the production function of a team. And it does really look like very generally across fields that it's, it's team actually output is driven more by the weak links, not by the strong links. Uh, interestingly, uh, so if you look at people who like say did different solo work and they have kind of a general sort of impact and then they put them together on a team, the outcome is going to be closer to the lower impact person than the higher impact person. Um, That's interesting. Which is kind of, yeah. yes, and it's a little it's a little surprising, but it's consistent with kind of people doing different tasks and you're kind of, you know, in a production function in economics where things are complements, uh, it is the case that the lower with a with a certain degree of complementarity, the weak, you know, it's like a chain with chain with links and the weaker link is the one that determines the overall strength of the of the chain, if you want to use a metaphor. But that kind of actually um, amplifies the importance of your question because like uh, that means a weak link could be problematic, uh, especially problematic for the, the team the team production. I think if you look at so organizations, you know, in the private sector, et cetera, doing research and sort of looking at this problem, you know, you say, all right, so don't, you don't want to put, if you have A's and B's and C's in terms of effort, you want your A's and your A's to be together. You want your B's and your B's together. But if I were to say this to a sort of R&D organization, they say, what's the solution to this? Say they, they would say only higher A's. In other words, you just don't want weak links. And so I think from a research point of view, uh, now in a more collaborative or academic setting, what that really comes down to, you know, obviously I said the repeat game and you learn about each other and then you solve the problem. But what about the first instance? That just means you have to screen. You have to spend a lot of time thinking about who you want to work with. Do you really want to work with this person? And in fact, you know, just looking at data, what do you see? Like, you know, in addition to people working in bigger and bigger teams over time in research, we also see them doing much more, say, international collaborations where they're not co-located. It could be within a country or across countries' borders. They're actually very far apart. And you might say, wow, like the internet and all these things, all these tools, like look at us talking on a cross-Atlantic uh, podcast at the moment. We can kind of, you know, interact kind of pretty seamlessly, right, at, at a great distance. Um, and so you might think people are just kind of, choosing wherever they, whoever they want to work with in the world. But if you look at the data, if you go deeper into that data and you see who is collaborating at a big distance, almost always they used to be co-located. They were at some point together. And I think that probably speaks to your question in the sense that, you know, you need to trust your co-authors. They have to be people you sort of understand, you really excited to work with. You don't think you're going to free ride. You're both going to be committed to each other and the project and, you know, as those numbers multiply. And so I think the idea is that you're sort of implicitly screening all the time when you're, when you're with people and you kind of get to know them, you kind of get a sense Yeah, we could work well together and we're going to treat each other well and we're going to build some trust. And that's going to make that, that even that first project, hopefully, hopefully go well. And then of course, having done that, you can then keep repeating. And then even if you go far apart from each other, you can go across the world from each other, you know how to work together and you, and you trust each other and, and you can continue to maintain those productive uh, collaborative mm -hmm. relationships. Yeah. I remember John saying, it's like a dance. Like if, if you don't like your partner, you can change it the next time. <laughs> so um, I think it's important to kind of observe and screen people and then you can change your co-author basically. Although the corollary to that, see, I think is, you know, it, it's okay to fail. Just don't uh -huh. do it all the time.
True. So, you know, you, you definitely got you got to find some relationships that work. And so, you know, it, 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 you could, everyone's going to have a few stories, right? But you don't want to kind of repeatedly be in bad relationships. You want to figure out how to that, that's find right. the good ones too. And, you know, find, <laughs> find those dance partners that you do want to keep dancing with. So. That's right. So, I mean, your answer, I mean, when you were talking, that also reminded me, like, because research teams, I think maybe the structure, I mean, we had a pandemic um, and I, I wanted to, you know, ask that question to you as well. Like, how did COVID, do you think, affected this, um, like, knowledge diffusion or this interaction between people? Because, it, I mean, for quite a while, we were not, we did not meet in person with people and then it was always online and then things have changed even afterwards. So what do you, th- I mean, it's, I mean, since you also mentioned like big distance and you know who is collaborating with whom yeah i mean i don't have a very strong sort of empirically driven answer to that but 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 i think that you know it was it was you know for continuing things if you weren't in a wet lab you know for economists you know we don't need we don't need to be in the lab uh you know i I think we could continue our projects really very successfully you know the ones we'd already initiated and i think we could even initiate new ones with the people we already work with but what I think what COVID was, you know, what COVID does in, in you know, Zoom and virtual stuff, it's it's fine for doing things that are intentional. It just isn't good at things that are unintentional. Because, I mean, every meeting is one you set up. It's not, you don't just happen into a meeting. You don't, you don't bump into a colleague. You don't just have a loose conversation. You don't sort of sit down with people you don't already know mm-hmm. and start talking. And, and they tell you something you didn't know already. You know, so I, I you know, for, again, I don't want to overstate this because I, I think this is actually a really interesting empirical question and, and this really should be an evidence-based point but it, it you know if you're just constantly within a fixed network and that's all of your interactions you know you're going to lose some of the sparks that might come from more of an interface you know outside that network and that kind of unintentionality I worry a little bit about that whether that's whether that is a small issue or a big issue I'm I'm not sure I, can't, I, I do think it's a big issue, personally. I, I think that a lot of the, you know, the more new and innovative stuff often comes from those kind of random conversations and those loose, loose structured interactions that you have without necessarily setting up the 3 p.m., you know, 3 to 4 p.m. Zoom meeting on a Thursday afternoon. And I, I kind of feel exactly that the kind of more straightforward routine stuff or the work with your co-authors that you've always done or the network you've always done, it can operate, at least in our fields, pretty straightforwardly at a distance. But I think the new stuff, which is often where the more interesting, the more radical stuff comes from, I think not just in economics, but more broadly across society, I think that has potentially taken a hit through COVID. I think people don't often realize that. We kind of probably you know, underinvest in, in, in ran, those random meetings. So we just think, you know, we know kind of what we want to do in our routine way of doing things. But the more random things, you know, which is why we have universities, really, with people kind of located together, um, why, you know, there are these advantages, I think, of agglomeration and co-location in, in cities. I think that is one of the, the things that um, may be costly. Um, as you say, it's an empirical question. You know, I guess it's going to be... An interesting thing to find out but i do i do feel that that is something so especially for new workers as well for young workers starting off who don't have those established networks mm-hmm. i think there there is a real potential cost to coming getting them integrated into thinking of these new, new, new types of ideas i mean i'll just yeah that's really interesting and i just to add to that I just, again sort of more from a personal impression but a pretty strong one would be around conferences for example because we had this phenomenon of you know going to quote virtual conferences versus go, you know going to them in person 
when I go to a virtual conference, you know, I, I see the papers. There might be discussants in our field. We often do that. I have a pretty good sense of the papers, and I kind of leave thinking, oh, that was pretty stimulating. That was an interesting eight hours, six hours, whatever. But if you go to a conference, like, you know, I've been doing again, you know, you get that, but I always come back, you know, like super stimulated, maybe overstimulated. It's like a lot to process because it's all those like conversations over coffee in between bumping into people. And I always have so much to process over lunch. I'm like, wow, that was really interesting. I feel like I come back having heard a number of things that I just didn't know. And it's really stimulating. And I just, you know, whereas you're in these kind of very like intentional channels, here's the paper, here's the next paper. You, know, you just, you know, it's good because you see these papers, but you, you really miss that. You really, that's a, that's a place where you get a super dense interaction uh, in an informal way. And I, I really always feel that it's, that it's, it's really valuable. Um, Michael Andrews had a paper on bar talks, I think. So I think there was a um, alcohol prohibition and people were not going to the bars as as they used to. So he observes that, you know, the, you know, coming together actually boosts more ideas. And he, he shows that actually um, when you don't go to, to the bars and meet with people, the, the number of innovations is decreasing. So that reminded me that paper, maybe we should invite him. Um, you should. <laughs> yeah, definitely. Mike, Mike has a lot of neat, neat ideas. He's doing really, really. Yeah, he's really, yeah. I, I just realized we haven't really asked Ben to talk a bit about perhaps the work he's most famous for, which is the burden of knowledge which relates to the growth of teams and specialization. I, I, know, I mean, it'd be good to just talk a little bit about that kind of fundamental contribution, which has changed a lot of the way that people think about how knowledge progresses. And I, it's changed the way I thought. You know, I, I was uh, you know, very much of the view that you know, we have exponential growth and we're going to have exp- you know, ideas that generate as exponential growth. But Ben's work and you know has convinced me I convinced myself also looking at the data that there is this sense of ideas becoming harder to find great yeah no I mean you've done some really important work on sort of showing at a kind of sectoral or technology level that it does seem to be quite a broad phenomenon that ideas are you know are getting harder to find or progress is kind of harder per person trying trying to push the frontier and, and yeah so the burden of knowledge idea is kind of a, uh, one potential contributing factor that one way of thinking about it. And actually, just since we started with my with uh, aerospace engineering and jet engines, let me tell you personally how I came up with that idea or why I am an economist, because they're very closely related. And so I actually left my undergraduate years and I was going to do a PhD in, in aerospace engineering. And I, I, I uh, but I was I was thinking, you know, at this point, as I said, there's three different PhD disciplines. They just around the jet engines. Uh, you know, if I was to go into turbo machinery, say, I would probably become an expert on, say, you know, a turbine blade, which is a very, you know, important feature. But it, there's a lot of material science in a turbine blade. They have to get really hot and rotate really quickly. So how do you cool them? There's a lot of sort of fluid mechanics. You can like drill holes in them to kind of get air to flow through the interior of the blade. Uh, you know, engine efficiency is all about drops, changes in temperature. So you want to run as hot as possible and still not melt. And you know, so it's like very kind of, you know, and that's just one part of the thing, you know, one part of the jet engine. And so I, you know, I'm like, you know, it's, it's quite interesting. There's a lot of, a lot of physics and engineering in that. But I sort of thought, you know, as I was going out to do my PhD and I was, I was, I was like, well, I mean, if I do that, I mean, the rest of my life, I'm going to be studying turbine blades. I mean, it's going to be one piece and I'm going to become a really big expert. It's going to be interesting and challenging and it's important. You can, you know, it's really important energy efficiency and all sorts of things. But, but I thought that's a real big commitment, right? It's very specialized. Okay. And then I was like, you know, this economic stuff that I've started just learning a little bit about, it seems like 
it's kind of like you can talk about a lot of different things. You can do this thing and then you can move, you know, you can kind of go over and talk about others. You can talk about labor markets and you can talk about macro and maybe micro. And maybe maybe it's not kind of as deep a pool of knowledge yet. And it allows you to kind of move around a bit more and have a little bit more freedom of movement intellectually. Whereas, you know, in the sort of deep, deep established areas of engineering, people are just really, really specialized. And so this gets to what I call the burden of knowledge, which is that, you know, the more progress we've made in an area, typically, sort of the more there is to know. But in every generation, we're born with empty minds. A, a baby is as, as empty a mind now as a baby did 100 years ago or 200 years ago. And so, you know, to sort of push the frontier in an area, you have to get from sort of birth where you have an empty mind and kind of get up to uh, some set of ideas about the frontier of knowledge. Uh, you know, obviously in certain fields, you can make contributions without necessarily being an expert. But, you know, think about it as probabilities. Your probability of taking the next big step is going to be higher if you kind of know what has come before. And just that as we accumulate more and more knowledge collectively in every generation, the problem for every ensuing generation of children, if you will, is is harder. It's a burden of knowledge because we know so much. And so how do people respond to that? Well, I think you kind of have two fundamental options in your human capital decisions. One actually is is you can just spend longer learning. You can spend more time in school. And we do see that, right? I mean, the idea of a postdoc, let alone a PhD, or, you know, back in the early 20th century, the the pinnacle degree in electrical engineering was a, a bachelor's degree, you know, and then eventually there'd be a master's and then a PhD and then postdocs, and you can go deeper and deeper and deeper. And so people spend more of their sort of life cycle, if you will, potentially a quite productive part of the life cycle, often in their 20s into their early 30s, now learning where before they were innovating. And so that can become a drag on your sort of per capita capacity to contribute over your lifetime to the frontier because you spend a greater proportion of your time learning as opposed to innovating. But the other thing is the thing we're talking about, which is mostly today, which is that the more there is to know, you are going to become, you know, you can choose to be narrower. You know, I'm not going to become a, I can't be an aerospace engineer. I can't even master the entire jet engine, but I can do turbine blades. Or I can't be a biologist anymore. I, I, I you know, I, I, I could do some very particular form of, of studying like, you know, molecular switches and how they interact with the genome and some particular functionality, or I could do structural biology. And, you know, you, you can do very much narrower, very deep uh, area, areas of things. And so you sort of narrow, but then as you narrow, you have to, you then, you know, again, have to come back and you have to collaborate in order to attack sort of bigger questions. And I think, you know, I mean, the age one's sort of obvious, right? Like if I'm not, if I'm learning, I'm not innovating. So you sort of, you're just sort of stealing time from one activity to another, and that can make our collective capacity uh, to push the frontier of knowledge sort of uh, go down uh, because people spend more time learning. The, the, the teamwork thing is really, I think, a matter of creativity or even frictions in teams. It's, you know, if, if we're all really narrow, you know, how can you have a really big idea? I mean, you know, you know if, if, I, if I had a big idea about turbine blades, okay, it might advance the turbine blade, but could it advance like something much broader and bigger than that in terms of the productivity of the economy? And so I think one, one of the things we're seeing and one, one way to think about why it's harder for capita to push, say, Moore's law in, in computing or better agricultural technology on the farm or, you know, whatever, or, you know, pick your thing. Um, it's that, you know, it's, it's just much harder to have big ideas alone uh, and your kind of creative material that you use is very narrow and so you're much less likely to have um, kind of a like a, a world-changing type of idea and that's partly about the structure of knowledge and it's partly about people being very specialized and how they navigate that structure of knowledge 
and and the thing you were talking about before um the the you only the team's only as strong as its weakest link or o-ring theory if you want to call it yeah that's going to magnify that problem as well exactly because as it's, the teams that... get bigger your own your productivity is 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 your weakest uh, your weakest productivity team member so that's uh, another yeah that feeds into that issue too and absolutely. And the other thing, I mean, just that's that's a major issue. I think another issue is just that you know everyone's working in teams, and that's more productive. But I, the way it's the bird of knowledge says we're doing that because we kind of have to, and it's kind of painful, right? It's sort of if you really want to take a step forward, then you know look at Boeing and a seven eighty seven, and they're going to have a lot of trouble in their manufacturing, and there's going to be all these problems, and it's it's because it's really complicated, it's really hard. And but in addition to weak links, I mean, you just have you know the coordination cost of collaborating with others you have to communicate you have to set up times to talk you know there's free writing and it gets back into weak links you know so, so teams are not some sort of super simple object that just kind of work very efficiently and fluidly they, they can raise their own can raise their own challenges and so i think part of part of the kind of part of the issue may be that there's also these frictions and teamwork uh that 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 inhibit our collective uh output would you like to switch to um, switch gears a bit? Um, so I was thinking of asking you about uh, the relationship between um, immigration and entrepreneurship, because you also have really nice papers um, on the on the relationship between these two. Because uh, I mean, and I think it's also an important topic because um, it's an important part of the knowledge diffusion or accumulation of knowledge. So yeah, and and there is also a negative discourse against immigration, for instance, like because of the you know rise in nationalist perspectives specifically you know, focusing on the negative aspects of immigration, such as losing jobs to immigrants. Um, so what do you find in your research about this relationship between immigration and entrepreneurship? Yeah, so, the, you know, the, the classic sort of political discourse about immigration from an economic point of view, I mean, there's obviously a lot of thoughts about immigration from kind of national identity and other perspectives. Um, but, if, you know, trying to understand the role of immigrants in the economy, the classic political discourse, and I think also the classic discourse among labor economists, professional labor economists, is that one should conceive of immigrants primarily as as workers. So they, they kind of, their effect on your economy is they, they change labor supply. Uh, so they come in and if there's, you know, say like a lot of, say, low-skilled immigrants, then they're going to then, you know, kind of expand the pool of, of low-skilled workers in your country and other things equal, that's probably going to lower the relative wages of low-skilled workers. You're pushing out the available supply. Um, and so, you know, there's this fear that, you know, to put it more simply and in, in more political speak, that immigrants take your jobs, right? They sort of, especially if you're low skill, uh, low skill immigrants would come in. Of course, high skill immigrants would maybe take jobs from high skill people. You know, in, in economics, the equilibrium usually works out so that you're not really unemployed particularly, but you but you might have a lower relative wage because there's sort of more more available resource of, of, your, of your type, okay? But again, simply immigrants take jobs. Now, but in the recent research we were doing, you know, I, again, coming from what's well, more natural perspective from my side, which is thinking a lot about innovation and entrepreneurship and technological progress you know immigrants don't just i mean certainly they come in as workers and that's part of what happens in an economy but they also do other things and one particular thing they do is they start companies right so you know you can point to lots and lots of examples certainly in in in, you know american history and america today where you know prominent entrepreneurs were not born in the u.s uh they were they were born abroad that's true with you know half of Google. It's true with Elon Musk, you know, and you can go on and on and on. Um, so if you look at that perspective, well, well, if you think of an immigrant as starting a company, then what are they doing in the labor market? Well, then they're actually not competing with workers. 
they're actually employing workers. They're, they're creating new demand for workers. So instead of thinking of them purely as pushing out labor supply as workers, they're actually pushing out labor demand as employers. And then the question is, well, what's the role of immigrants, relatively speaking? Are, are they, are they, do they play a stronger role as kind of workers competing with others or as, as employers providing jobs? And just to sort of step back for a second, you might think, well, sure, they create some companies, but I mean, how many, there's so many jobs. I mean, how can they have a big effect on the supply side? But if you think about it, you know, just forget immigrants for a second. I mean, everyone works in a job in an organization that was started by somebody else, right? And it adds up, right? So, you know, there are as right, many yeah. jobs created <laughs> as there are as there are supply, right? And that's what a job is. Um, and, you know, so all those private sector jobs in the United States, for example, and all these workers, you know, or any country, UK or elsewhere, you know, there's some entrepreneur ultimately kind of behind that job in the in the private sector. And what's interesting about about immigrants is that immigrants are actually so this is are very very entrepreneurial. They're actually very likely to start companies. And so what this paper was was taking administrative data from the U.S. government, the census, where we could also code, uh, we could code, we could track every startup in the country. We could look at the number of employees they ultimately uh, hire, uh, and we could look at whether the founders were born in the U.S. or were born outside the U.S., but are you know in the U.S. now, immigrants. And we basically found that immigrants are about 80% more likely on average to start a company in the U.S. than native-born Americans. So they're just far more entrepreneurial. Now, their effect on the labor market still might be modest if most of the companies they start were sort of small, like single establishment restaurants or, you know, nail salons or haircutting places or whatever it was. Um, so the, you have to look not just at how much they start companies, but how big do those companies become? Are they really big employers? Or are they small employers? But what you see actually is that the distribution of firm size, like in terms of employment or sales or something, for immigrant-founded firms is very similar to that for native firms. It's just that immigrants are 80% more likely kind of at any firm size to start a company. And so they're just kind of an outward shift in entrepreneurialism from, you know, the Googles at one end of the spectrum all the way down to the single establishment restaurants at the other. The end result is that actually immigrants to the U.S. create more jobs as employers than they take as workers. And so their net effect is not to compete with workers who are already here, but it's actually to expand opportunities for workers who are, are already here. And you can do some calibrations to try to figure out what the effect is, but it's a, ultimately a positive effect on the wages of US, work, US born workers, not a negative one. So it really kind of flips the script by opening to a broader way of thinking about immigrants uh, in the economy. I mean, immigrants select into the countries, right? Um, but also, I mean, countries can also select the immigrants that they want. So maybe the countries, you know, um, they're specifically setting policies to attract more skilled workers instead of unskilled workers. I wonder what you think, you know, do you think restricting immigration to skilled workers would benefit or harm those entrepreneurial activities? Or, I mean, we can even maybe link it to innovations. Well, you know, you, you think of skilled workers as you know, doing quite productive things, whether they're as, you know, productive workers, they're, you know, engineers or doctors or whatever, or they are, or they're entrepreneurs. And, you know, you would, you expect to see them being sort of successful, relatively successful in those ways. And so you might think they have an amplified, uh, actually positive effect on the economy compared to the average worker, uh, average immigrant. But on that said, I mean, you know, like the U.S. system does have many selection criteria for skilled 
uh, immigrants, but also is relatively sort of family-based and 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 uh, compared to many other systems, like Canada, for example, is very skill-oriented in their immigration policies, while the U.S. is considered sort of less skill-oriented, relatively speaking. And the data I was just speaking about in sort of the U.S. and entrepreneurialism, that's not because of skilled entrepreneurship, that's just sort of looking at our policies as they have been, which is kind of, you know, a big, a big mix. And you're still seeing this very, this very positive effect. So I don't, I wouldn't go to the conclusion that you sort of, you, you must be a skilled system to see benefits. I, th- I think the, the interesting thing is if you have a relatively kind of unskilled system or just a family-based system, uh, you see these effects. And, and something you said, Riveda, which I think is very interesting, is it's, it is not just that the government through its policy is selecting certain kinds of immigrants. It's the immigrants themselves self-selecting to cross a border. And as I think back, you know, on the sort of result that immigrants are so entrepreneurial, you know, and I don't know that this is the right way to think about it, but if you want to think about it in a pretty simple way, it's, you know, you're self-selecting into immigration. What is it to immigrate? It is to cross a border, to go to an environment that's new to you, it's quite uncertain. It's it's willingness to make a big change to improve your life at considerable risk. And what is entrepreneurship? It's risk-taking. It's a willingness to kind of do something different, to take a personal risk, to try to get to something better for yourself. And so I think these are actually very similar activities in a sense. And so in that sense, it may not be surprising that by self-selection, the people who are willing to kind of immigrate to another country are also the kind of people who like to start companies uh, and then have these kind of quite positive effects in the broader labor market. Mm-hmm. And you have a really nice paper on the age factor uh, for entrepreneurship. For instance, like Mark Zuckerberg, as far as I know, he quit. I mean, he, he was at Harvard, right? And then he left Harvard, I think. And then he started his um, company, et cetera. So, I mean, we see those examples and hear successful stories, you know, those billionaires and say, and we tend to assume that, you know, if you want to be a successful entrepreneur, you should be young and then you should be in the business. I mean, um, as soon as possible. Is this really the case? What do we see uh, about this in the data? I should yes. also give a public public uh, health announcement here. We're not advising people to drop out of college. That's right, yeah. <laughs> <laughs> right. Not everybody who drops out of college ends up being uh, Bill Gates or Mark Zuckerberg. But sorry, over exactly. Actually, <laughs> absolutely, John. And let me, let me try to fold that observation in here a little bit. So, so it is certainly widely, widely believed that very young people are more innovative, either in science or entrepreneurship or technology. And, you know, across a body of work, I've been looking at this and so have others. And, you know, that's just that view turns out to be sort of really misleading. OK, uh, people actually tend to peak in innovative activity probably in their 40s, not in their early 20s on average. Now, in entrepreneurship, yeah, so this is a, a paper we looked at every company founded in the US and we could track uh, the, the age of the founders when they started the company. And we found, we found that you're, you know, the people who start the high, very highest growth companies in the US, like the upper one in a hundred or one in a thousand in terms of employment growth or sales growth, uh, they, are, they are typically around age, on average, they're age 45 when they found the company. So it's quite different from kind of the narrative that you see in, in the media. It's quite narrative in the people often tell themselves it's different from how venture capitalists often uh, focus their investments. You think of them focusing on young people. Um, so, you know, it's, a, you know, so, but on the other hand, as you pointed out to start, there's someone like Mark Zuckerberg who you know, started very young, or you could go to Steve Jobs or, or Bill Gates. These are sort of the college dropout type, you know, or at least getting started very early. Um, 
and so so how do you reconcile these two facts and and I, I think what's going on is that people conflate the fact that there are very young people who are very successful entrepreneurs with them being successful because they were young when in fact they're successful because they're really 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 very good and they're not just good when they're young they're just good okay so for example let's take steve jobs apple he's very very talented entrepreneur innovator if you look at sort of apple's peak performance it's really you know after he's kind of thrown out and comes back later on it's really with the iphone right uh which is a different kind of more open ecosystem type of phone you know thing and, and he's 51 i think when they introduce the iphone if you look at the the market growth of the market capitalization value of certain large corporations like microsoft or google where the founders were young you actually see the most rapid growth in their market cap is when they're later on. It's not when they're very young. So, you know, and maybe take Elon Musk, you know, and now we're back to X with Twitter, Twitter, which may not be his best move, but, you know, X.com was his first thing. Uh, you know, people don't, I, I wouldn't say that Elon Musk, you know, was, was kind of in decline when he went to Tesla and SpaceX, right? He seems to be getting better. Okay, and so I think if you look at, I, th I think what the real fact is, and this is actually, I think, a source should be a source of great optimism and, and an important correction in people's own psychology about how they reflect on their own innovative potential and entrepreneurship, is that you know you're probably your life skills are some are getting better, some are getting worse, but on net, as you're getting older, you're getting better. Okay, and so we're all kind of seem to be getting better as we get older, and then there's some people who are so good they're even good when they're really young, and they're getting better too. Right. Uh, and so and so this is this this is this thing you have to sort of and I think if you asked Steve Jobs or Elon Musk, I don't think they're going to say, yeah, I was great when I was 19. And since then, it's been all downhill. Right. Because if you believe it's about being young, they they themselves are way past their prime and we shouldn't be investing in them because it's the fact that they were young, not the fact that they're really good. Right. And so I think I think the right lesson is that we all have enormous potential. And I, I find as I get older, I find this to be quite a, quite a source of optimism that I that I can still do, um, you know, hopefully important research and have good ideas. And that, you know, it turns out that maybe you're accumulating some wisdom and experience and knowledge and networks and other benefits that actually make you more capable uh, doing important new things as you get older, not mm -hmm. less capable. Yeah. And I think one point that we should keep in mind is that, I mean, Mark Zuckerberg, for instance, was admitted to Harvard and he started, you know, his education there. So, I mean, that shows something. <laughs> so it's important to keep in mind, as you said, that they were good and uh, they're also getting better um, over time. So exactly. So would you like to switch to cheesy questions? <laughs> sure. Okay. So the first question that I want to ask you, can, can you tell us one thing that you like um, and dislike about academia? And John, you can also answer that, you know, um, question is, these questions as well. Well, something I, uh, I'm curious what John's going to say. Something, something I like, I mean, you know, for the academics is not for everyone, but I like the creative aspect of it. And I like the ability to move from one project to another. I love the idea that which is, I was not, grew up around academics, which was not modeled for me, but I kind of started to discover it sort of later, but just this thinking about, problems or questions we don't know the answer to just kind of like entering a dark room and stumbling around and then bringing these tools that we've developed these methods and you know trying often failing but try to kind of figure out what's going on shedding light and then you know often you fail and that's frustrating but when you succeed and you feel like you've really discovered something new or you've really been able to really kind of isolate a force um and you feel like you have a compelling answer to something and that was something that we had not been able collectively to kind of 
informed before. I mean, for me, that's very that's very satisfying and, and very and very very gratifying. How about you, John? I mean, I, I, <laughs> I mean, similar in a way. I mean, I I often describe it um, as you know, research is a bit like a hobby. So you know, my hobby is doing economics, and I'm really lucky because people pay me for it. So it's like I get <laughs> yeah. paid for my hobby, you know. Well, that's a pretty good. That's a pretty good life, really. You know, it's it's uh, it's it, it, it's you know. I think you know if you do research, you want to go into academia. You have to love it for itself because you know you're not you know you're not going to become you know a billionaire by being an academic. So you have to really enjoy doing that, really? scratching that itch <laughs> of intellectual curiosity if you want to, mm-hmm. if you want to do it. I mean, what do what do we just? I mean, the same thing. Everybody just likes the job. It's you know, I, you know, administration and you know, um, marking exams. I mean, I think I do think whenever, whenever again, my friends who you know, I mean, not academic friends, ask me to describe what I do and what I don't like doing about my job. They say the only thing which looks like proper work is the stuff you say you don't like doing, <laughs> like you know, marking exams, <laughs> exams, going to commission. That looks like real work. Like I recognise. But that's you say that's the only stuff you don't like doing. It's the stuff I think is proper work. So I think uh, I think that's I, yeah. The other nice thing about I, I guess this is probably less well. I mean, there's a kind of community of scholars. I mean, it, it, one of the things we talked about international, you know, uh, working together and seeing people. You know, one of the nice things is that you know you you get to be part in your field of a community, um, and you know there's there's uh, there's a lot of um, help that the members of the community give each other and um, finding, you know, talking to each other, finding out things about each other, building up the, the, the kind of profession together. Um, and I think that's something, you know, you, you often see, people often see how everybody's fighting each other and, you know, throwing barbs in the seminar room. But what, what often is not seen is that kind of community aspect of uh, what's happening. I mean, I'd say Ben is extremely good at that. He has been very good at building up the innovation community. There's this initiative, we talked to Heidi Williams, Last week, and he and Heidi have been building up lots of things at the NVR, in particular, and this, you know, in, this uh, you know Institute for Progress work, interacting with policymakers. That's been a good example of the way that Ben's been building up community. I think that's a really important aspect of you know our jobs. John, I, I want to ask a specific question to you. So, don't you have like even a single day where you just say, you know, oh, I'm so tired. I don't want to do this anymore. I'm just going to go home and do nothing. Don't you? Haven't you ever had that in your life? Oh yeah, oh yeah. Often I've just come back from a week's holiday. I I didn't look at any emails, <laughs> so I had total total R and R. That's pretty unusual though. So uh, okay, I it happens rarely. That. It, ha- it happens pretty rarely. Okay, well, that's a good thing. I mean, it's it's because yeah. it's it's what what gets me out of bed in the morning. I, I do like John's hobby thing. I, I I was just actually out with dinner from with my wife the other night. It was our, it was our wedding anniversary, and we're, she was talking about retirement and like you know are we are we going to retire at some at some point? And, and I'm thinking retirement. <laughs> I mean, like you know, if I retired, I would just I just want to do what I'm doing, you know. So you know, may, may we all find careers, and I think that, I think a lot of people do, you know, in, in non-academics and other kind, but maybe all find careers that where you just really enjoy the activity and it suits your personality and and uh you know i, f- mm-hmm. I find like uh, when i'm kind of i don't i, I have the reverse problem Rubedo, which is like if if i don't have a good idea if i'm struggling to come up with something that i'm and, and i feel lost like on the weekend i feel a bit lost i want to be like i want i, wa- I want to kind of have some idea that i'm so excited about that i can't i can't not think about it 
because uh, if that's ever it's probably not good for me being mentally present with my children but 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 uh but but <laughs> yeah. I'm, I'm always sort of i feel very excited that kind of excitement is one of the things i really I really enjoy it. It's a nice match. That's amazing. I mean, so far, I mean, we've had several episodes so far, and I think that's one thing common among all the economists that I've um, talked to, that you are so passionate and, and you love what you're what you're doing. So I think that's my, what makes you successful as well. But now the question that I'm going to ask, okay, you can't be an economist in this parallel universe, okay? <laughs> so don't say it's your hobby. <laughs> so what occupation in a parallel universe, if you can't be an economist, what would you do? What would you choose in that case? What occupation would you choose? I, you know, over life, I, I hope we all engage in self-reflection and we learn sort of what we're better at, what we're not so good at, and maybe what we find meaningful and what we find less meaningful. Uh, one thing I've really reflected on over time is just that I, I really enjoy create being creative. It sort of goes back to maybe John not liking grading. What I really don't like is rote, like just doing something over and over again. I, I find that very, it's not, not something I enjoy. Uh, and, and, but, but doing something new and creative for me is, 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 uh, is very stimulating. So, so my parents were architects, like both of them. And, you know, architecture is like, it's art but it also has to like not fall down, right? It has to like obey the laws of physics. And so it's kind of like a kind of practical constrained creativity. And sometimes I think of, of research as the same, like we're being creative, but according to, it has to be true. It has to stand up, it has to work. And we have these tools and, and methods that we use, we use to get there. So if I did something else professionally, this is, you know, and I can't be an economist, I actually think I'd probably be a researcher, but on something like molecular biology or cosmology or something, because I find those areas super interesting. Uh, I go back to my more scientific orientation. And if I couldn't be an academic at all, I think I would I would probably be in the creative arts and just not very good at it. Like I love to play music and I love to write a bit, fiction, and I'm, I'm not very good at those things. But I, So I'd probably be like a very a very underemployed like musician or something if I, if I couldn't be an academic. That's really nice. I think you could. So, if I may, um, you. I think you would also be a great voice actor. Uh, how about you, John? What would you be if you can't be an economist in the in a parallel universe? I, I was actually thinking about this because uh, it was Oppenheimer. I was especially. I was thinking it, it's such a shame we can't live multiple lives. Maybe we can, but yeah, it would be fantastic to have another life and you know, be a theory, you know, be a physicist. Imagine you could just spend your life just doing physics and you know thinking about you know, cosmology or something like that. That would be, be so much fun. I mean, you know, of course, we, you know, I read a little bit about that, but I would I would love to be able to just study that and do that as, a, as an alternative. I mean, and many other fields. I mean, history is history as well. I like, I listen, I listen to a lot of history podcasts now. I really enjoy that. If I wasn't an academic, I guess, I don't know. I mean, I, I've done a lot of different jobs. So, you know, I, I started my own tech business and worked as, as a partner management consultancy firm. I've, um, you know, I was in policy like Ben, you know, Ben's also been on the Council of Economic Advisors. I was in the UK government advising them. I, I would quite, I, I imagine I would, I, I could be in policy, you know, type of work. So working in, you know, some either political advising role or policy advisor. Tony Blair once asked me to be his economic policy advisor. And I always wondered whether I should have, wow, I yeah. should have done that. Um, I guess that's still a bit of an economist as an advisor, but that whole policy world. I mean, one of the downsides of academia is that you're talking about things while not actually doing things. <laughs> so, <laughs> yeah, that's you know, a good going description. Back to saying, actually making 
or designing the you know the turbines and the turbines work and take people in the sky i mean we don't really <laughs> maybe sometimes we, we we have a little bit of that if we're setting interest rates if we're, but most of the time we're talking about things or writing about things without actually doing things and you know i think that is a bit of a disadvantage actually being able to do change the way directly the way things are is something which would be would be exciting to me Mm-hmm. I was thinking maybe he might say he might be a politician and I, I don't think I'd be a politician because I'm very bad I'm very I'm very bad at making decisions so I take a long time and I'm prevaricate terrible and I'm not confident as well you have to be or at least have to pretend to be extremely confident a you have to make decisions quickly b you have to be extre- you know pretend to be extremely confident and uh, those are not and also you have to persuade people to vote for you and none of those are, are skills I have any ability whatsoever so um. <laughs> I'm very aware. I, I, I advice, advice I could give from me, but actually, being a politician, I would be extremely bad at. <laughs> <laughs> okay, so one last question then. If you were, I mean, we're in economics, and even on econ Twitter, sometimes you know, there are discussions. But if you were given a magic wand, what would you change in our profession? Is there something that you would like to change? Maybe there isn't. I don't know. <laughs> you know, I, I'd like economics to be more inclusive. So one thing about economics is it aspires to be extremely rigorous and that is really good like we are we are as you know john said it's true like it's a lot of camaraderie in the fields but also you know seminars are tough like people want to be rigorous they want to they want to really test ideas they want to push and i think that that is important for us to be serious and make progress uh that's robust the but i think that you know economics you know i think is maybe more sometimes status conscious than it should be um and people use cues um like institution or some other criteria and and it's harder to kind of maybe break through journals or conferences or an attention without some of those status cues and i think you know i think other fields maybe because they're bigger are like physics I, I don't think people are as sort of, I think it's more open is my impression. And I'd like to see, I'd like to see economics and maybe just as we scale up and because there are so many great economists doing research in so many places and across the world and, and, and it may, maybe this kind of naturally breaks down, but I'd, I'd like to see, I want the doors to be open. And it, it, it goes back to something we talked about before, which is it's not just about um, fairness it's about our capacity collectively to make progress is, is greatest when we have diverse perspectives who can ask things in new ways and a lot of perspectives, like just scale. And so I think we wanted the doors to be open. And I think doors are open in many ways, but I, I think we, 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 need to do, we need to do more and we need, to, we, need to, we need to, in our own thinking, avoid any kind of bias that closes down the field uh, as opposed to opens it up. Yeah, no, we are. I mean, we are. We're, we're, the economists are particularly bad, I think, in diversity. Um, the thing I would share, I mean, I think one of the issues, one of the big problems is very well known that in terms of the research publication process, I mean, it, it is ridiculous how long it takes between starting research projects, writing a paper, getting sending it to a journal, going through multiple rounds. Of, so there is some, the, the equilibrium we have in economics, which takes so long to get things published, 
is something which is uh, not not very healthy. <laughs> I mean, it's fine to have some journals like that, but when when the it takes so long to get published in so many journals, we we have to have a way somehow of getting research out more quickly. And I think we are so like having the internet and having blog posts and having ways of writing things to communicate directly and quickly is great. We saw that during COVID. But it's still the case that the most prestigious work is never like that. And, it is, and that's different from many other, many other sciences where there's a much faster rate of publication. So I think that way of, you know, the journal production process and there's, there's attempts to, do, to doing that, like AI insights and other things. I think more of those type of initiatives are really needed to uh, enable people to get their research out in a more timely manner because it's not, uh, it, it just has all these problems of when people are coming up for tenure, for example, and because of the randomness of getting published, you have a very s small number of publications to judge people's tenure decisions on. I think those that the, that whole process of the research publication system is not working well in economics. It's a well-recognized problem, but it, it, it is a problem. Yeah, I mean, I agree with all of these things. Um, and I would also say that, for instance, in addition to, for instance, the diversity aspect, the toxicity that we see sometimes in seminars, for instance, not not every department or not every school has it, but um, even that sometimes makes probably some people um, less confident and then you're just kind of maybe dropping out from your PhD program. So I think it would be better to have a nicer environment or atmosphere in that sense. Um, anyways, I think it's been a great talk. Thank you very much, Ben, for joining us today. I was a, Thank you, Ben. It was a pleasure yeah, to have pleasure. you. Um, please let us know. I mean, I hope our listeners also enjoyed the talk. Please let us know if you have any questions or comments through lscpodcast at gmail.com or through um, Twitter. Have a great day, everybody. Um, see you in the next episode. Bye. Bye-bye. Bye. Thanks again.